This morning, brothers and sisters, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 55. You'll find this on page 731 in the Pew Edition Bible. And I'd encourage all of you to follow carefully in your scriptures. We're going to follow in the sermon, verses 1 through 5, but I want to read the entire chapter, Isaiah chapter 55. We read the word as follows. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my sure, steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness of the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel. For he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose." and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, congregation, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Again, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. Our text this morning, verses 1 through 5, in connection with the celebration of the Lord's Supper this morning. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you do when your world comes crashing down around you? When your dreams turn into ashes? Have you ever been there? Or at least do you know of someone for whom that's true? Everything you've hoped for, everything that you've invested in, everything comes to nothing. 
Everything that you thought would bring you success and happiness has turned out to be just another dead end. That was precisely the situation facing the people of Israel in the days of Isaiah the prophet. If you read chapters 1 through 39, for example, you get a very clear indication of what's going on. The Lord is very angry with his people. And he speaks of impending judgment, captivity. And the people are astonished. How can this be? We're God's special people. We're the children of Abraham. Yes, says the Lord, but you're the people who have wandered off. You are the people who practice idolatry. Your hearts are not loyal. They're not where they ought to be. There's gloom. There's despair. There's darkness that fills the land. But then in chapter 40, the Lord issues a command to his prophet Isaiah. He instructs the prophet to proclaim comfort. Comfort! Comfort my people, says the Lord. Flatten the hills. Straighten out what was crooked. Prepare a way for the Lord to arrive with his salvation, with his deliverance. The Lord has not given up on his people. But how will he rescue them, especially if they've been carted off into captivity? The Lord speaks of a servant. Take note, he said, behold, my servant, whom I will send forth. The servant will bring deliverance. But how will he do that? Well, we read part of it this morning, didn't we? From Isaiah 53. He will do what we could not do for ourselves. He will accomplish for us what we were unable to perform. He will lay down his life as a sacrifice of atonement. He will pay the price for your sin and mine. The Lord will bring salvation, deliverance, in a way that was not expected, in a way that defied the imagination. Which brings us then to chapter 55. The announcement. The announcement of this salvation as God has promised it as God has delivered it in Jesus Christ. And in fact, if we go back just one chapter to chapter 54, we find a great missionary chapter in the Bible. The Lord says, the day is coming where you have, will have to enlarge your tents. You'll have to pull up your tent stakes, expand your tents, because the people of the Lord will, will expand far beyond the borders of Israel. Every tribe and tongue and nation will come to know the Lord. In fact, the mission of the Lord is to make sure that he is known as far and wide as the waters cover the seas. So what is the nature of the salvation? What is the announcement that we ought to listen to as we come to the table of our Lord? As we think about what is signified and sealed to us in the sacrament this morning. I'd like to propose three questions. First of all, who is invited? And we could say by extension, who is invited to the table of the Lord? The Heidelberg Catechism asked that question in Lord's Day 30. Who are to come to the table of the Lord? 
Secondly, what is offered by the Lord? Notice carefully what the prophet indicates. And then thirdly, on what basis can this offer be made? It's made on the basis of the covenant promise that God had made long before to his servant David, the king, and which is fulfilled, of course, in the person of Jesus Christ. So those three things this morning. First of all, then, who is invited? Is this, this feast, this dinner, this banquet, is it for the rich? Is it for the high and mighty? People in positions of power? The movers and shakers of Israel and in today's world, the people who get all the publicity in the press? Is it for the self-righteous? Those who walk into places of worship and say, oh Lord, I thank you that I am not as other people. No, we find just the opposite. Notice, at the very beginning, verse 1, we have simply the word come. And I can't emphasize strongly enough the way that that word should be understood. It is an expressive declaration. Come! Like a street vendor. Or if you want to think of, of a vendor at a baseball game. Come, get it! A hawker, as an older generation may have been familiar with that word, a hawker who says, come, listen, pay attention, I have good news. Come. And who is invited? Everyone who thirsts. Thirst, of course, is a, a common biblical metaphor for not just the physical desire for water, but the spiritual desire, the deepest longing of the human heart. Those who are longing for forgiveness, for reconciliation, for the brokenness to be repaired in their lives, for their waywardness to be corrected. Come, he says, come to the waters. There is a need that must be addressed. The prophet in Ecclesiastes, or the preacher, I should say, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says that God has placed eternity in man's heart. I think that's one of the most significant statements in all of Scripture. God has placed eternity in your heart and in my heart so that the things of this world, no matter how luxurious, extravagant, expensive, they will never fully satisfy the longing that God has created in all of us. It is a longing for God himself. Think of how Jesus uses that imagery of water in his own public ministry. He says, for example, to the woman at the well in Samaria, he arrives there, of course, in the middle of the day. And a woman is there. That's strange. Usually they would come in the morning or the afternoon when the temperatures were cooler. It was more convenient to gather water from the well then. She's there in the middle of the day because she has a checkered past. Jesus knows this, of course. She thinks she's doing him a favor by offering to draw water for him and give him a drink when he asks for it. And he says, I have water to give to you that if you drink of that water, 
you will never thirst again. And she's intrigued. Jesus says, now go, bring your your husband over, and we'll talk more about it. And she says, well, I'm not married. And Jesus says, correct, you've been married multiple times, and the man you're currently living with is not your husband. How does she know? How does he know so much about her? And later in John chapter 6, Jesus speaks of hunger as well. The people are following him because he multiplies loaves and fishes. And in a day before supermarkets and refrigeration, who wouldn't follow a prophet who could do that? On the spot, multiplying food, and Jesus points it out. He says, you follow me only because I fill your bellies. But rather, he says, seek the bread which is from above. And then he goes further to say, I am the bread that comes from above. I am the true manna of God, that if you eat of that bread, you will hunger no longer. Or John 7, verse 37. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and in him will flow springs of living water. And in his public sermon on the mount, he says what? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The invitation is out. Are you listening? And do you identify with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? The prophet says, come. Come. And if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. Are you thirsty? The second description, verse 2, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Now, boys and girls, did you notice something strange about verse 2? Listen carefully. He who has no money, your pockets are empty, come and buy. Well, who can buy with no money? And this is the wonderful thing of the gospel. The prophet says, even though you are spiritually, as it were, bankrupt, come and have access to that which only God can provide for you. Jesus will echo this later on in his own ministry when he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their own spiritual need We don't come to the Lord's table proclaiming our righteousness. We come to the Lord's table as those who acknowledge our need, our emptiness, and God fills us. We acknowledge our hunger, our longing, our desire, and God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, satisfies. Satisfies. The thirsty, the hungry, and the poor. The catechism says the same thing. The Lord's Supper is not for the self-righteous. It's not for those who are contented with themselves. It is for those who acknowledge their dependence, their neediness, 
their weakness. Many people, when they hear this language, our blessed are the poor in spirit, will say, see, we've told you, Christianity is just a crutch for the weak. It is for the weak. But it is a great blessing for us. Secondly, what is offered? Again, we know the water. And there's a distinction here between water and milk and wine. What does water do? Travel sometime in a desert region where your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth, you're parched, you would do anything for just a drop of water. Water refreshes. Water gives life. When we lived out in Idaho, we saw that so clearly. When you look at the foothills, in the springtime, they're nice and green. And then by the middle of June, when the rain stops falling, everything turns brown. Brown. Lawns turn brown. And then you get a shower. The rain falls. And everything comes back to life. And milk. The Lord described the land of promise, the land of Canaan, as a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Milk is a sign of nourishment. Not only does it refresh, but it gives strength. It gives vitality. And then wine. Wine. God gives his blessing, of course, upon wine. And Christ as well. Wine is a sign of God's blessing. It's a, it's a sign of, of festivity, of joy, of celebration. In fact, it is vital to the imagery of the kingdom of heaven. Already the Old Testament prophets spoke of a day where there would be feasting and the, and the sweet wine would flow like a fountain. And when our Lord Jesus Christ institutes the sign and seal of the new covenant, he uses wine. Wine makes the heart glad. Wine is the, the sign of life and enjoyment. That's what he offers to you. That which refreshes, that which nourishes, and that which celebrates. All here this morning at the table. Why these common elements? Just as the catechism says, again, just as bread nourishes the body, so the body and blood of Jesus Christ satisfy, nourish, strengthen me in this life. But notice verse 2. One of the most penetrating questions, I think, in all of the Old Testament, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Would you like to hear my, my paraphrase, my Paul Lipema paraphrase version of this verse? It is simply, why do you go about dumpster diving when God has promised you filet mignon, the finest food you could possibly imagine, and you'd prefer maggot-infested food? Why is that? Now, I don't know if in DeMott you see a lot of dumpster diving. Probably not. 
But I remember as a child, I grew up on the farm, as many of you know, but my father raised vegetables, and on a regular basis, we'd have to travel in the middle of the night to uh, South Water Street Market in Chicago to deliver our produce. My brother and I would accompany my father, and again, as a boy of about 10 years old, growing up on the farm, very isolated from other things in the world, it was quite an experience to go downtown in the middle of the night, all the things we saw some of which I won't repeat here from the pulpit, but it was an amazing experience for a child. But I remember one time Dad was backing up to the loading dock, and the headlights we could see were shining upon these cardboard boxes, and I see these boxes moving. And out come these men out of the cardboard boxes. And I remember asking my dad, Dad, what's that? What are those men doing? And he said, those are bums. Now, in another church, when I told this story, I had somebody say to my dad, how could you tell him that they're bums? We call them homeless today. Well, back then, they were called bums. We called them bums. But I remember what a shock it was to me to realize that there were people who lived in these kind of boxes, who had no homes of their own, and who would walk the alleyways looking for bits and pieces of food. Now, you see other pictures of places in the third world where people are scavenging dumps looking for food, and how pathetic, how sickening is that imagery. It makes your heart break, doesn't it, when you see that? These people who you can see their rib cages, they're scrawny, and they're looking for any little bit of food, and all they can find is that which has been cast out. And the prophet says, why do you spend your money upon that which does not satisfy. When you are going after things apart from God or seeking God's substitutes that you think will satisfy you, that will give you happiness, that will give life purpose and meaning in your life, that is the equivalent, the prophet says, to trying to eat maggot-infested food. It's a serious call to introspection. And we speak this way as well, maybe not outwardly, but internally. We have this dialogue. We say, if only I had this, if only I had that, more money, a less contentious marriage, a more successful business. If I was better looking, if I was more popular, things would be so much better for me. I'd be so much happier. Why do you seek satisfaction in that which cannot ultimately give you satisfaction? I like what C.S. Lewis said about this subject. In one of his essays, he compared it to a little child living in the slums. And he talks about our desires, and that our desires, our sinful desires, he says the problem is not that they're too strong, but that they're too weak. He says it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. End of quote. Did you get the imagery? You have this child in the slums. Or I think about some of my students at uh, Divine Hope when I talked about the days of Cabrini Green. 
And I said, remember those days? Remember those buildings? And I had students say, yeah, I, I used to live at Cabrini Green. Did you really? And it was quite a hellhole. But can you imagine a child at Cabrini Green or deep in the slums, sitting there in the alley playing with mud pies, thinking life doesn't get any better than this when he knows nothing about the offer of a luxury resort or being by the beach, relaxing in the sun with a perfectly clear ocean at his feet. It reminds me, and I'm dating myself here when I say this, but it reminds me of the old Milwaukee commercial, the beer commercial from years ago. You remember that? Two, two campers sitting around a campfire at night, they crack open an old Milwaukee beer, and what do they say? Some of you remember. It doesn't get any better than this. To which I want to say, do you really mean that? Life doesn't get any better than sitting around a campfire opening a beer? You cannot be serious. It's meant to be an exaggeration, of course, but the point is still there. Our pleasures are far too small. We are far too easily pleased. Listen again to what our text says this morning. Listen diligently to me. In the Hebrew, it's even more emphatic. Listen. Listen to me. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in the richest affair, to use the language of the NIV, the richest affair. Think of a, the most luxurious banquet you've ever eaten at. Every food you could possibly imagine there for the taking. And you want to go to the dumpster for your food? Isaiah says, what's wrong with you? The food of Babylon, of captivity, was scarce, and it was very expensive. But the food of the Lord, the food of the covenant, what signified and sealed this morning, it costs you nothing. It costs Jesus everything. And then thirdly, on what basis is this invitation made to us? Listen diligently to me, verse 3, and then verse it goes on to say, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. No doubt he's thinking here of 2 Samuel 7, 14, where the Lord promises in making his covenant with David that his throne, David's throne, unlike Saul's throne, would last forevermore. And again, the people in Isaiah's day must have been scratching their heads saying, how can this be? We've been carted off into captivity. You know the story of what happens to the kings of Israel. The last king of Israel had to see his son slaughtered before his own eyes were plucked out. How horrible was that? But there will come another king, great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will reign. And of course, this excited the disciples. A king is coming. It made Herod fearful. It made him psychopathic. It made him murderous. The people were overwhelmed. The king is coming. But what kind of king would he be? He would be a king who would rule from the cross. As he would say to his disciples and to others after his death and resurrection, did you not know that the Son of Man had to die first and then enter into his glory? 
Behold, I made him a witness of the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. And here's the extension of that call, that announcement. I make him a witness of the peoples, a leader and commander. Behold, you shall call a nation you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. From Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, that call goes out. And we are here today as a congregation at Emmanuel because of that call being extended far beyond the borders of Israel. All because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. Notice this language, for he has glorified you. I happen to like the way the NIV translates this. At least that's what I remember, the wording of it. For he has endowed you with splendor. A beautiful expression. In Jesus Christ, you are endowed with splendor. We come as beggars. We come as those who are broke, impoverished, hungering and thirsting. And at the table of the Lord, we are reminded that in Jesus Christ, we are endowed with splendor. We are dining with the risen Lord, the risen King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 